This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to week two of pulmonary review. Daphna, how you doing? Well, week two came pretty quickly <laughs> for me. <laughs> and so uh, I hope everybody's uh, been able to keep up with their studying as much as they had, had liked to, which I have <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, it's really the key to happiness when it comes to board review, right? It's uh, uh, meeting setting the appropriate expectations That's right. in order not <laughs> to deceive oneself. That's right. And it's all about uh, balance, as they say. That's, that's so true. Okay. So this week we're continuing with pulmonary questions. And um, should I start? Do you want me to? Yeah, please. Okay. So we're doing pulmonary question number 16. A two-day-old infant born at 32 weeks gestation develops a right tension pneumothorax. That's As the pneumothorax, <laughs> That's not good, but at least you got the diagnosis. That's right. <laughs> As the pneumothorax increases in size, the infant has many alterations in physiologic signs. So the question is, which of the following physiologic changes is not, again, which of the following physiologic changes is not typically found in an infant with a tension pneumothorax? Okay. Okay. So let me give you the list. Choice A a decrease in cerebral oxygen delivery. Choice B, a decrease in pulse pressure. Choice C, an increase in central venous pressure. Choice D, an increase in heart rate. Choice E, an increase in PaO2. So we're looking for what's not typically found in a tension pneumothorax. Choices are decrease cerebral oxygen delivery, decrease in pulse pressure, increase in CVP, increase in heart rate, increase in PaO2. Go. Okay. So uh, decrease in cerebral oxygen delivery. Yes, I think that happens. Um, decrease in pulse pressure. Yes, I, I would expect that. An increase in central venous pressure. I would expect that also because of the intrathoracic pressure which is why you get decreased pressures uh, elsewhere. Increase in heart rate. Yeah, I would expect a baby to early on become tachycardic, but I'm going to hold that one because sometimes you see bradycardia and tension pneumothorax, mm -hmm. latent tension pneumothorax. And then increase in PaO2. So I would expect babies to desaturate in the, in the face of pneumothorax. So I'm going to say that an increase in PaO2 is not typically found, so that the right answer is E, because I would expect a decrease in PaO2. You are correct. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> so this is an interesting question. I think the answer is very straightforward, but it has these different choices yeah. where you sort of stop and you say decrease in pulse yeah. pressure, right? Could it it's be? like, <laughs> could it be? What is pulse pressure again? Um, and then it has uh, it has increase in central venous pressure, uh, which. I, I don't know. I, I don't think of central venous pressure very often. Could that be? So you have all these choices that could be distracting. So let's just uh, summarize. 
A pneumothorax is, again, as we know, air accumulating between the parietal pleura lining of the chest and the visceral pleura covering the lung. And there's a bunch of risk factors for that, right? Um, any aspiration of stuff into the lungs will cause uh, increase your risk of pneumothorax. That could be blood, meconium, or amniotic fluid. Any type of lung disease um, could increase your risk of pneumothorax, whether it's RDS, meconium aspiration, TTN, CDH, pneumonia, hypoplasia, all that stuff. Barotrauma, obviously, like mm -hmm. if you're on a vent and you have severely elevated uh, vent pressures, you could cause barotrauma and in turn a pneumothorax. Uh, situations that it have uh, rapidly improving compliance, mm -hmm. like when you give surfactant to a baby, uh, that rapid increase in compliance, uh, that rapid improvement in compliance uh, paired with potential high pressures could lead to a pneumothorax. And then there's this idea of the spontaneous pneumothorax that that's, a, that's we think happens in 1% to 2% of full-term babies, mostly asymptomatic. And to be honest with you, the everybody that I've spoken to about this kind of says it's probably higher. I mean, mm -hmm. we just don't x-ray right, enough of full-term babies. Right. They might so, be in so the nursery, right? <laughs> that, that's exactly right. So... The, the, so then the, the question becomes, what is really the difference between a, a standard pneumothorax mm -hmm. and a tension pneumothorax? So in tension, there's really no way for the air to get out mm -hmm. of the cavity during expiration. And you have progressively with each breath an accumulation of air into that pleural space. So the presentation is fairly typical. You would have all sorts of signs of respiratory distress, obviously. You would expect decreased breath sounds on the side of the pneumothorax. Um, and you could also see um, a reduced point of maximal impulse. When it comes to a tension pneumothorax, really it's because the air accumulates and starts pushing all the structures on the opposite side of the chest, now you're seeing a very peculiar set of, of problems. And these are um, acute hypotension, uh, tachycardia followed by bradycardia, mm -hmm. a decreased respiratory rate. And these... Uh, these um, vital sign disturbances lead to physiologic changes, a decrease in PaO2, a decrease in blood pressure, uh, an increase in your central venous pressure, and decreased oxygen delivery to the brain, and a decreased uh, pulse pressure. So let's, let's go into this a little bit more just so that we're, we're clear. Ideally, you're pushing the heart and you're applying pressure against the heart, which technically um, should impact the ability of the heart to fill mm -hmm. and the ability of the heart to deliver a certain cardiac output. So when cardiac output is uh, compromised, the um, and when the when the stroke volume is is compromised, then heart rate should increase, right? Mm -hmm. And the heart will compensate by just increasing heart rate to make up for for that lack of of stroke volume. And then eventually, um, this this will cause your venous pressure to increase, right? I mean, everything sort of backs up, and so that's why your central venous pressure will go up, which is also why your pulse pressure will go down. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember correctly, the pulse pressure is your systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure. Okay, So as your systolic pressure goes down um, and your diastolic sort of increases slowly but surely, your pulse pressure uh, will go down. Your central venous pressure for people who are um, need to a reminder, it's basically your average pressure in your entire venous system. So as things back up, obviously, your pressure will increase there. But the idea is, you were talking about this, you said you would expect bradycardia, right? But that's really a rapid progression of mm -hmm. the physiologic changes that you would see. So you would expect 
initial tachycardia followed by bradycardia when really the, the heart is not really able to compensate anymore due to the tension uh, pneumothorax. So going back into the choices, decrease in cerebral oxygen delivery, absolutely. Uh, a decrease in pulse pressure, we just spoke about that. Systemic pressure should be uh, negatively affected by tension pneumothorax, and your diastolic pressure should slowly increase as, as your central venous pressure uh, is high. Um, you would expect an increase in central venous pressure, as we just said, and then an, an increase in heart rate, as you said, initially, mm -hmm. and then eventually should lead to a low. And so you would not expect an increase in PaO2 as um, your, your uh, cardiac output is really affected. You would not expect uh, oxygenation to increase, especially uh, both from the circulatory standpoint and from the pulmonary standpoint mm -hmm. where uh, your gas exchange is also compromised. Okay. Good review. Yeah. Speaking of review, we have a review question from, from last week. So um, it's a different question, but a similar concept. Um, which of the following does not assist with the prenatal clearance of fetal lung fluid? This is question 20. Um, a, decreased formation of fetal lung fluid. B, increased chloride transport into alveolar spaces. C, increased lymphatic oncotic pressure, D, increased sodium transport out of alveolar spaces. So this is another reverse question. Which was which does not assist with prenatal clearance of fetal lung fluid? So that's an easy one now because <laughs> I remember that when we discussed fetal lung fluid clearance, you told me your very scientific <laughs> method of remembering this, which is that chloride creates critical fluid and that uh, sodium secretion sends it back out. That's right. <laughs> so, now you got it. <laughs> now I got it. Um, so looking at these choices, um, prenatal clearance of fetal lung fluid, decreased formation of fetal lung fluid is part of, it's one of the components, it's part of the prenatal uh, aspect of clearing fetal lung fluid, uh, increased in lymphatic and cotic pressure, uh, we said, yes, that that sort of helps pulling the fluid out of the alveoli. And then really the choice is, mm -hmm. are you going to say increased chloride transport into alveolar space versus increased uh, sodium into the alveolar space? Um, so then, yeah. So the answer choice is, so, okay, hold on. I have to now get this right because it's, which one is, which one does not assist? Um, it's increased chloride transport into the alveolar space. Yeah, because answer D is, increase sodium transport out of alveolar spaces, which is exactly what clears the fetal lung fluid. So mm -hmm. that's right. So the the correct answer is B because it is incorrect. So increased chloride transport into alveolar spaces is what um, creates fetal lung fluid. So let's do a quick review about that. This is a high yield topic because it's almost always on the test. So the active transport of chloride uh, into alveolar spaces is what creates the osmotic gradient that induces flow of liquid into the fetal lung. And so that's the real driving force for um, fetal lung fluid development. And this is an important point that I did not understand until 
I did the board review course, honestly, <laughs> so many years ago. But when the larynx is closed, it keeps fluid from leaving the lungs. And this um, lung distension is actually how the lung grows in utero. And the volume of fetal lung fluid approximates uh, the functional residual capacity at birth, which is about 20 to 30 mLs per kilo. So that's how we create fetal lung fluid. Then as we approach term, if we get to approach term, uh, fetal lung uh, fluid production slows down uh, to about a rate of four to five mLs per kilo per hour. And then prior to uh, birth, we see the respiratory epithelium change, again, from chloride secreting into the alveoli to sodium absorbing or sodium secreting out of uh, the alveoli into the interstitium, leading to um, absorption of fetal lung fluid, which will follow the sodium out. We see increased lymphatic oncotic pressure, and because the uh, fetus has low alveolar protein, all of those things um, improve the movement of fluid from the alveoli out into the lymphatics. And we know that the prenatal clearance is about 35% during the days prior to term birth. We know 30% is cleared during active labor because of the mechanical forces from labor, as well as catecholamine release, cortisol and thyroid surges, which all increase sodium transport. And then the last kind of third of the fluid um, is moved um, post natally, so with the first initial breaths and crying. And you've got our mnemonic. Yeah. Chloride creates critical fluid. Sodium secretion sends it back out. <laughs> yep. And chloride is, is sent into the alveolar mm -hmm. space. Sodium is being taken out of the alveolar space. And that's the difference between prenatal and close to delivery change that happens. In the, the only other thing I think is important to mention is this is active transport of the chloride and the sodium ions using the ATPase pumps, uh, but the but the fluid follows via osmotic gradient once those ions move. All right. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, it's Monday. Let's do one more. All right. Okay. So, pulmonary question number twenty six. Daphna, which part of the neonate's anatomy contributes most to the respiratory system resistance? So, which part of the neonate's anatomy? contributes most to the respiratory system resistance. Choice one, chest wall. Choice two, nasal passages. Choice three, second generation bronchi. Choice D, choice four, uh, trachea. So this is an easy question, but it's, but it's also kind of a hard question. <laughs> and I, I, I know the answer because I remember it from studying, but I, I, still don't understand why it's the right answer. And I've always struggled with that. So um, I think um, people might be driven to pick almost any of these answers, uh, you know, chest wall, um, uh, in the baby is actually quite compliant, but they're working against gravity, nasal passages, sure, that could be concerning. Second generation bronchi seem very small so that they may have a lot of resistance. Uh, and then the trachea. So I always tend to answer one of these generation of of bronchi, but I know that's the wrong answer. <laughs> no, the right answer is nasal passages. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the question pretty much asks you to evaluate what contributes to 
airway resistance, right? So mm -hmm. what is what is airway resistance? So the definition of airway resistance is basically the pressure the uh, the pressure gradient required to move gas through the airway at a constant flow rate. Okay, so the pressure difference between entry and exit, uh, between your, your entry point and your finish point, and in order to move gas at a constant flow rate. So what determines airway resistance? And I think this is very valuable information. So flow velocity, um, which really doesn't have much to do with this uh, question, mm -hmm. obviously. The length of the conducting airway, and we know that, right? The longer your airway, the length aspect of it really increases uh, your airway resistance. We know that when you put an ET tube in the baby, you're artificially extending mm -hmm. the airway. The viscosity and slash the density of the gas itself and the inside diameter of the airway. So when we're looking at the total respiratory resistance, there's, um, there's three big components, obviously. Number one, and, and, and a lot of them are mentioned in the, uh, in the answer choices. So that's why it gets a bit tricky. Mm -hmm. The chest wall, the airway, and the lung tissue. So when you break it down, the chest wall contributes to about 25% of the total respiratory resistance. The lung tissue to about 20%. And the airway contributes to 55% of airway resistance. So, so what do we mean? What do we mean by airway versus lung tissue? So the airway starts um, at, on the face, right? So 50% of the airway resistance is actually contributed by the nasal passages. And so it, can, it gets kind of tricky, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like now, now you're thinking of percentages of percentages. Right. And <laughs> so all in all, if you, had to, if you had to not categorize anything, nasal passages contribute to 66% of airway resistance, which is huge. It's huge. It's just it's everything. massive. <laughs> um, now, the, when you're looking at only the airway, we said... Um, that the nasal passages uh, represent 50% of that. The rest are uh, first-generation bronchi and the distal airway. The distal airway is minimal. And then when you're looking at um, specifically, if you want to look more specifically at the rest of the pulmonary tree, 20% of airway resistance is contributed to by the trachea and the generational bronchi one, one through four. So really these early generational bronchi. And less than 10% is contributed to by the glottis and the larynx. So it's very interesting that, right? I mean, when you're talking about respiratory system resistance, you wouldn't think, you would think immediately starting down trachea, mm -hmm. down the bronchus, right? So I think it's interesting that you, you have to start at the level of the face and think about your nasal passages. So let's, let me just summarize. The trust wall contributes to about 25% of the airway resistance. The Airway itself, including the nasal passages, the first generational bronchi, the distal airway, that's like 55 to 60% mm -hmm. of the airway resistance. And the lung tissue themselves is 20%. Now, does this make sense, right? I mean, nasal passages are super narrow. Mm -hmm. So the radius is really, really, really small. So that is one of the reasons why, why it increases resistance. So... I think this is a question that comes up very often. And and I think, yeah, sorry, you, you talked about length. So the, the length of the nasal passageways is longer than any of these smaller passage points. So I think, right. you know, the combination right. in our mm -hmm. equation <laughs> leads to much higher resistance. So... So just yeah, one to remember, comes, yep, nasal passages yeah, <laughs> is right. where the, the majority of airway resistance is in the neonate.
All right. That was that was productive. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else to add before we close uh, this morning's show? Have a good Monday. All right. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.